Its actions, like Trump's, don't merely affect policy, they socially construct the public sphere, expanding the range of acceptable arguments and ideas to include dangerous and divisive claims about public institutions. Even if such actions don't ultimately succeed in the short term, I worry that they will sow long-term dissonance, discord, and doubt. And there is no technical fix for that. There's only a political one. And it might take a generation to solve. Bridge the city. Whoa. Bridge the city. Yeah. Bridge the city. Yeah. Gotta bridge the city. The city. Bridge the city. Whoa. Bridge the city. Yeah. Bridge the city. Yeah. Gotta bridge the city. The city. Welcome to Bridge the City a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas that inspire Milwaukee to action, and my name is Benjamin Rangel. My name is Kyle Heggie. And I'm Sam Woods. And at the time of this recording, there is a big action step. Huge. Yeah, the biggest. Ginormous. uh, Action step people can take, (laughs) and that is to vote in the midterm elections. That is, if you haven't already. Which you should have by now. Absolutely. We got early voting. People really should take advantage of that. But just in case you have not voted, we forgive you. But only if you listen to this episode and you use this episode to help better understand just how many areas of our country our national leaders affect and to be better informed when you head to the polls. And we want to take note, if you are listening after the midterms and you voted, of course, uh, this episode will still be extremely useful and insightful. You can use this episode as a guide to where America is two years into the Trump administration and where we're going. Yeah, uh, we're very proud of this episode because we have an array of extremely knowledgeable guests, six political scientists from Marquette University, and one, if not all, of these professors is certain to pique your interest and give you something to follow for the next two years of the Trump administration. Did, did you say six professors? Six professors. Wow. wow. That like, is a lot of two expertise. Two hands. You have to use two you hands. You have to use two to hands to count them. And these professors, let me tell you, they're experts. We're going to cover party politics. We're going to cover courts, domestic political economy, healthcare, international relations, and also the political economy of expertise. Which, honestly, Kyle, I didn't even know that was a field. Exactly. This episode. So I'm going to learn something this episode. <laughs> Exciting stuff. So first, we take a listen to one of the most well-respected scholars in party politics today. Her name is Dr. Julia Azarian. Honestly, it's a real treat to have her at Marquette because Mm -hmm. beyond hearing her on Bridges City, you can hear her on inferior podcasts like like the 538 Politics Podcast. What's 538? I haven't heard much of it. Uh, They do politics. They're podcasts. Uh, This guy, Nate Gold. Nate Gold. I don't know what 538 refers to. No, just kidding. So we actually love Nate Silver and and 538. And I think it shows how great... Julia Zaria is the fact that she's on that podcast often, mm-hmm. and she's also a contributing writer for Vox, which is a huge deal. She's an important voice in academia today and has some essential things to share about how Trump has affected party politics as we understand it and what the future of the Republican Party might be. My name is Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I write for the Mistress of Faction on Vox.com and 538.com. So I'm going to emphasize Trump's party leadership and his rhetoric, which are related but not totally the same thing. There's this question about, is it Trump's party that political scientists and journalists have been thinking about? So I'm going to kind of talk through what I think are some different 
elements of this question and like what it can actually mean to change a political party and what the different facets are of a of a political party. So I'm going to start with one that's fairly obvious, which is policy priorities. I think when when people say that Trump hasn't really changed the Republican Party, and people do say that, they point out that the legislative agenda in year one especially was pretty standard issue Republican fare, um, with emphasis on repealing the Affordable Care Act, which was unsuccessful, and passing a tax cut, which was successful at the kind of executive branch level, not involving Congress. There was a lot of rolling back of of EPA regulations, other kinds of regulations. This is very, you know, classic going back to Reagan, Republican priorities. But where Trump has changed things is really infusing the political environment with, uh, with this question of immigration. Immigration attitudes were were important. And there's some research that shows immigration attitudes were important in predicting who switched in 2016, either... So people who switched from um, from Romney to Clinton tended to be more open to um, to immigration. People who switched from Obama to Trump uh, tended to have negative feelings about immigration within. This is in the context of one particular specific panel study. You know, immigration, it's hard to actually emphasize. I think this sounds weird to people who have only recently aged into the electorate, but it's hard to emphasize how little immigration has typically been on the national radar. You know, it would kind of come up, like, in the third Republican primary debate or something. They would talk about immigration. The more moderate, businessy Republicans will say, well, it's great for the economy. People like Pat Buchanan would say, you know, culture, threat, and English only, and then, like, everybody move on. Between 1996 and 2012, there were, the, the word immigration was never said in a vice presidential debate. Whereas those debates would talk about the economy, they talk about jobs, they talk about how the incumbent president was performing. But it just the sort of reach of the issue wasn't wasn't there. And that's really what I think we've seen in years both one and two in the Trump presidency, but particularly in year two. And I think when people go back and think about year two of Trump's presidency, it will be Kavanaugh nomination. Maybe that seems very that top of mind to me right now and it will fade, but I think it'll be a big story. And immigration and particularly the family separation policy. You know, that's a shift in priority. Like I said, it's not necessarily a departure from some of the more anti-immigration wings of the party. That's not new. Bringing it up as a priority is a little bit, is a little bit new. So in some ways, it'll be instructive to see what goes on in the second two years as far as what the administration's priorities are. The second thing that I would say is about Trump. Trump as a person, right? How has Trump as a figure changed the Republican Party? That is also, I mean, that's difficult because on the one hand, if it's a cult of personality, then typically these things don't usually outlast the leader, right? So will Trumpism die when Trump leaves office? We will not know the answer to that question until Trump leaves office. But I do think one thing that we're learning about contemporary party politics is that it's about identity and that people are very protective of their identities. And I think that's, to some degree, what's happened with Trump, who's a fairly unpopular nominee, and now is a very popular president among Republicans. Even though this wasn't the choice of a lot of Republican voters, a lot of Republican voters picked somebody else, now they see people attacking Trump, criticizing him, or whatever word you want to use, and they double down on their identity. And I think that that is... That is linking Republican voters to Trump in a way that maybe I think it'll probably be consequential and shallow at the same time. 
Like most of those voters will will move on. Trump will eventually leave office, and they'll tie their identity to some other symbol. But they may elect very you know Trumpy candidates in to Congress, who because incumbency advantage is what it is, may be there for twenty years. So I think that that actually is a sort of like the short term shifts in the electorate can have long term policy implications. Trump's rhetoric about democracy and his attitude about democracy and the role of the media and the role of legitimate opposition and how much that's affected the Republican Party. That, again, I think is something we won't know for sure for some time. People who are good at politics consolidate their power. And I think that, you know, we've seen that kind of power consolidation behavior from Republicans in a, you know, pretty, you know, they use that power pretty extensively. That's maybe most obvious in the Supreme Court example, right? Not just not just the party closing ranks around Kavanaugh, but Mitch McConnell refusing to hold a vote on Merrick Garland in 2016. But you also see it in other, in other elements, and a lot of that trickles into how the electoral system is shaped. So you see it in partisan gerrymandering, which I see as kind of standard issue using the system to fight your battles. You see it in voter ID and voter roll purges, which I think starts to veer into some other qualitatively different territory. I think it's it's possible, I'm just going to say the two things that might be true. It's possible that Trump has really empowered Republicans to embrace some of this stuff. Um, and it's possible that these kinds of these kinds of impulses were always there. Within the party, there's a very powerful narrative around things like voter ID that is pretty compelling to a lot of people that you have to protect the voting system. Um, that isn't new. Trump didn't invent that. And the things that I think he's said that are maybe the most the most out of step with democratic norms, like attacks on the press, I think may also be pretty temporary rhetorical shifts that I don't necessarily see other Republicans picking up on. That being said, the impacts of those of those superficial shifts may be long lasting. So where do presidents have advantages in changing their parties? I think the, these are these are really pronounced advantages, even though they're often very short-lived. And one is they do have a kind of rhetorical advantage in being able to define the situation. And Trump has done this better than, I think, any president that I can remember. I was thinking about this um, last night because I was listening to a podcast with Max Boot, who's now a former Republican, but he was a never-Trump Republican. And it occurred to me that even the never-Trumpers, right, they're not defining themselves. They're not the Tuesday group. They're not moderate Republicans. They define themselves relative to this president. And when people are doing that, even and even like Senate skeptics like Jeff Flake, when you're the, the focal point that people are defining themselves against, you've kind of, you've reshaped the political landscape. And again, I don't really know how long that'll last, but it's it shows that advantage that presidents have over even powerful members of Congress or powerful members of the media. And what one thing that goes along with this is that you know, politics is dynamic. So, so one element of changing a political party is preventing anyone else from changing it. And coming out of 2012, there were a lot of elements of the Republican Party that were moving around, like, how are we going to change? How are we responsible to changing society? How are we going to pick up the Latino vote? Um, how are we going to maybe join forces with Democrats on um, things like mass incarceration and criminal justice? These are small movements in the party, but I think vocal ones. And then comes Trump, right? And none of those people are going to change the party. 
So even if he hasn't fundamentally changed the party, he's prevented anyone else from changing it in their own in their own perspective. The last thing I want to say is I want to shift into this Trump and rhetoric, and lots of people have said this, but it really bears repeating. Presidents have slipped into a kind of more partisan rhetoric over the last 40 years, but Trump has really been distinct in his use of kind of us versus them, his criticism of private citizens, and his kind of seeming disconnect from the moral dimensions of the presidency. And I've written about this before as a Trump is a 19th century president. I think it also is sort of linked to some shifting rhetorical norms during the Obama presidency. Obama was a lot more casual in the way he spoke, and that didn't always mesh with the role. And then Trump has taken that to another extreme, in his, particularly in his, his use of Twitter. Like, he kind of uses Twitter like a private citizen. And that's, you know, that has multiple dimensions, right? On the one hand, you do kind of want the president to be an ordinary person. But then when the president does communicate like an ordinary person... It's very unnerving. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of complexity there. There's a there's an interesting mixture of continuity and change. And we're definitely looking at a, a presidency that has I think remade the political landscape. But I'm not sure exactly what the long term implications for the party will be. Dr. Azari just discussed Trump's effect on the Republican Party, and similarly, Dr. Paul Nolet will explain how partisanship and party affect our judicial system, from nominations to the Supreme Court to the potentially more important nominations to the lower court, Dr. Nolette provides valuable insight and even takes note that in the case of lower courts, President Trump may actually have a legitimate claim to breaking records. And please note that we recorded this before uh, Judge Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court, so some things about that situation were still unknown. My name is Paul Nolette, I'm Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University. And my area of research and teaching is in American law, especially um, law and courts. And so my focus is on not just the US Supreme Court, but also uh, other courts all across the, the United States. So what I would like to talk a little bit about today, since we're reflecting upon where we are in the Trump administration after almost a couple of years now, is Trump's impact on the courts, which I think has been perhaps one of Trump's biggest legacies already um, and perhaps one of his biggest successes. So I think in general, the courts typically are the branch of American government that get the least attention in part because it's shrouded in some mystery. Um, you know, you always hear from Trump and tweets and such, and you hear on the news about what Congress is doing or not doing, but the courts tend to be a little bit more obscure. Of course, lately, uh, we're, we're recording this on the first Monday of October, and lately the courts have been very much in the news. For one, this is the first Monday in October. That marks the very first day of the uh, new Supreme Court term, so they're starting to hear uh, oral arguments for a number of new cases that'll continue over the next few months. But of course, they've also been in the news a lot lately because of the controversial nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. But as I mentioned before, President Trump has already had a major impact on the judiciary. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how so. So I'd, I'd start with the Supreme Court, which again gets the lion's share of attention when, when the topic is the federal courts. And one of President Trump's first uh, major successes, I would say, 
is when Trump nominated in the Senate confirmed Neil Gorsuch to the to the court. And this followed a lengthy Supreme Court vacancy after Justice Antonin Scalia died and the Republican-controlled Senate refused to hold a vote on Obama's nominee for that seat, Merrick Garland. So a couple of points are particularly important, I think, in regards to uh, now Justice Gorsuch. First, he was young for a Supreme Court nominee. When he was nominated, he was 49 years old, which made him the youngest Supreme Court nominee since Clarence Thomas in 1991. He was, Thomas was 43 when he was nominated. Uh, given his right, relatively young age, Gorsuch could easily be on the court for 30 years or more. Um, so a couple of generations from now, in fact, and well after President Trump is uh, out of office. In fact, I would even call this likely since the average age of the last dozen justices to leave the Supreme Court is right about 80 years old, which would give him about 30 years on the court. Secondly, the other important thing about Gorsuch is that the evidence so far suggests that he is very much a strong conservative like the justice that he replaced, Antonin Scalia. In his first couple dozen cases, he voted with Justice Thomas, who's largely viewed as the court's most conservative member, 100% of the time. Since then, he's broken with Thomas in a few cases, but he still votes most frequently with Thomas and the other very consistent conservative on the court, Samuel Alito. So he's young, he's conservative, and he's probably going to be on the bench for you know, the next two or three decades. So it's a very, very important development, given the fact that the Supreme Court and the federal courts in general decide an increasingly large amount of extremely controversial issues. I mean, name the controversial issue in the court... Um, is largely going to be dealing with it over the next uh, few years. But I will say this, as important as Trump's impact on the Supreme Court has been, the impact may be even greater in the lower federal courts. So there are two layers of courts, district courts and courts of appeals under the, the Supreme Court. Um, and there are several hundred federal judges occupying these roles. And these courts tend to get far less attention than the U.S. Supreme Court, but it's important to remember that the vast majority of cases end in these lower courts, never get up to the Supreme Court. Nowadays, the U.S. Supreme Court hears about 75 or 80 cases a year. Meanwhile, there's thousands and thousands of cases that are being um, heard by these lower courts, so they're really important. So Trump had 108 judicial vacancies to fill in these lower federal courts at the end of the Obama administration. Um, compared to only 54 that Obama had at the end of the George W. Bush administration. And this is largely because judicial nominations had slowed down to a crawl after 2015, and many vacancies in the courts were, were opened. So, you know, Trump <laughs> often boasts that he's broken all sorts of records and done the most tremendous thing ever, and I don't know about many of those claims, but here's one that's actually true, is that he did appoint the most ever appeals court judges in the first year of a presidency. Um, he had 12 appeals court um, nominees in his first year that were successfully confirmed and 10 district court judges compared to Obama, who had only three, and W. Bush, who was at only six. And since that time, since that first year, Trump has nominated judicial candidates much faster than President Obama did. Um, and so to date, to date, 
He has nominated 140 judges to the lower courts, 67 of which have been confirmed by the Senate. And that includes 26 successful confirmations to the United States Courts of Appeals, which is that very, very important level of courts right below the Supreme Court. There's still 13 circuit court vacancies, 115 district court vacancies. So Trump's going to have some opportunities to fill even more seats in, in the coming months. So the, the number one, Trump has nominated and successfully confirmed a very large number of judges to the bench. Also important, though, is that they are and have been really consistently conservative, uh, much like Neil Gorsuch is successful nominee to the Supreme Court has. And a lot of this reason is that these names, the names of the people that he's appointed, have been run through the White House counsel, someone who might not be a household name, but has been extremely important in this process, Don McGahn, Trump's White House counsel, who has been really the point person on these judicial nominees. And he's heavily vetted these nominees to make sure that they're conservative and there's not going to be any surprise liberals in this group of, of nominees. So long story short, Trump has successfully filled a bunch of vacancies and shifted the federal courts pretty dramatically to the, to the right. Um, one other thing that I'd mention about the nature of Trump's nominations so far is a, a real lack of diversity in general at least along gender and racial lines. So one of President Obama's big legacies when it came to the courts was that he appointed the most diverse set of judges of any president to that point. Of Obama's nominees, 42% were women, 35% were lawyers of color, a relatively small 37% were white men who are still the, the overall majority of judges on the federal bench. But with Trump's nominees, 77% um, have been men and 90% have been white. So not a whole lot of racial or gender diversity on the, on the courts. And it's important because, number one, the courts deal with so many controversial issues, but they have lifetime tenure, unlike most judges in state politics who have to run for election or have limited terms, federal judges serve for life. And so many of these appointments, appointees will be on the bench potentially for decades, well past Trump, whether he's a one or two term president. The average age so far, I should say, of President Trump's confirmations is 51, but he has had a number of successful nominees who are as young as their late 30s or early 40s. Who, so, I mean, they're going to be serving for, for decades, for sure. So I think I'd close by just saying, you know, where things go from here will really depend heavily on which party controls the Senate after the upcoming midterm elections. Because this is one of the uh, structures of the Constitution that it's the Senate, not the House of Representatives, the Senate that has the role of advice and consent to confirm or deny uh, judicial nominees. So whoever's controlling the Senate is going to have a big say in, in whether Trump is able to successfully fill all these vacancies that currently exist on the federal bench or or whether it's going to be a lot more difficult for him to do so. So if Republicans maintain or expand their current 51 to 49 uh, Senate majority, 
President Trump will likely be able to have dozens of additional appointments to the federal judiciary that will last for decades. If Democrats manage to take over the Senate, however, many of Trump's pending and future nominees will probably meet the same fate as many of President Obama's nominees in his last two years, which is to say they'll fail to receive a, a floor vote in the Senate. It's also worth noting that Don McGahn, who's been so important to this entire process, it's been announced by Trump that he'll be leaving this fall. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that affects the pace uh, at which Trump has been able to stock the courts with, with strong conservatives. It's about the economy, stupid. That was James Carville's often quoted phrase about what is actually important in electoral politics. So we at Bridges City, well, we're not stupid, okay? And we found someone to explain just how the economy has been over the past two years during the Trump administration. That expert is Dr. Dwayne Swank. He speaks on the current state of the economy and how the politics around the economy could play out over the next two years. Well, I'm Dwayne Swank. I'm a professor of political science um, uh, here at Marquette. And I'm going to talk about the Trump administration's domestic economic and social policy, uh, a little bit about international economic policy. Uh, during the first uh, year and three quarters, uh, we're nearly at the two-year mark, not quite. And uh, again, the focus is on economic and social policy. Uh, I think a little political context is important uh, to, be, uh, to, to start this off. I think it's important to note and to keep in mind that Trump's electoral victory in 2016 rests to no small degree on his policy appeals to a block of voters, namely semi-unskilled workers, big swaths of the middle class, who had taken big hits to, to employment, uh, their income, and general economic security in, in recent decades. Now, his policy appeals to this group as well as core blocks within the traditional Republican uh, Party uh, electorate, really the core of his economic and social policies were threefold. The first is economic nationalism. And it's interesting that uh, while scholars have characterized a lot of the Trump administration's international economic policies in these terms for his entire uh, tenure in office, just yesterday he self-identified as a nationalist. And he may have even used the phrase economic nationalism. The second major thrust of his policy appeals uh, concerns domestic economic policy, and for the most part, this was traditional Republican economic ideology. He promised extensive deregulation of business, major tax reforms, including business tax reduction and uh, a tax reduction, particularly for the middle class. He also promised a significant infrastructure program. Thirdly, uh, and this is comes to social policy. He promised to defend Social Security, Medicare, and even Medicaid. He also, at the same time, promised uh, to get rid of Obamacare. Now, again, these pledges were directed toward uh, not only traditional Republican voters to, to, to some degree, but also to this large swath of voters who had really taken um, uh, a severe economic hit, uh, semi-unskilled workers, uh, lower middle class. These policies, these economic and social policies at the core of his program really, also blended with what is arguably the most consistent central theme of his campaign, which was essentially anti-immigration rhetoric and xenophobia, and sometimes not too veiled uh, uh, racist rhetoric. 
there's been severe criticism of the policies, these pledges. Let's look at what has happened in each of these areas. Economic nationalism. Well, uh, we've had uh, significant policy reforms in this area. Trump pulled out of the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Treaty Agreement, which was uh, uh, one of the most significant multilateral treaties in recent years. He also began renegotiating a variety of multilateral and bilateral trade deals. We've just now completed a new NAFTA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Trade Agreement. Agreement. And perhaps most important in, in this, in terms of substantive impacts, the Trump administration has pursued round after round of tariff and other punitive measures uh, against our competitors, against unfair trade practices, much of which is targeted, not exclusively not exclusively, but much of which in practice falls on China. So uh, in essence, uh, uh, there's been a very, very uh, substantial amount of reform of trade and, and more broadly international economic policy consistent with this, this uh, uh, idea of economic nationalism. In terms of domestic economics, the two big areas have been deregulation and tax reform. There's been extensive action through executive order and particularly through administrative actions, EPA, Federal Communications Commission, Interior Department, uh, substantial deregulations, freeing up business. Now, much of this falls in the area of environmental regulation. Uh, there's been substantial re uh, reforms, removal, deregulation with respect to you know, limits on methane and other types of pollution that occurs during the exploration for or consumption of oil and gas, rollbacks of restrictions on fracking, rollbacks of planned fees on leases for mining and other exploration in federal lands, uh, rollbacks of protected land. The list is very. In terms of tax reform, most people are generally familiar with the tax bill. It's a major reduction in corporate tax rates from 35 to 21 percent, uh, a rate of tax on corporate profits. On average, a 2 percent reduction across uh, the board at different income levels and personal income taxa taxation. A lot of very uh, specific niche features of the tax reform, many of them benefiting upper income groups, for instance, uh, raising the amount of uh, income exempt from inheritance taxation, keeping provisions that benefited very uh, affluent groups like hedge fund managers, both in the area of international economic policy and, and domestic economic policy. Many of these reforms are highly controversial and have received intense criticism in terms of you know the rollback of American environmental protection as well as sort of the abrogation of the U.S. leadership role in international uh, environmental effort. Uh, the tax reforms have received a great deal of criticism for their, the bias toward upper income groups the, and, and other aspects I'm going to come back to in just a minute. But in political terms in the short term, even Trump's critics would have to admit that this core set of economic and social policies have been uh, largely successful for him. Uh, for two reasons, two simple reasons. One, Trump can claim and does claim that he's followed through on all of his major campaign promises. And this is what he was saying in the campaign he would do in terms of these broad pledges, and this is essentially what he's done in practice. And secondly, particularly with respect to the domestic economic policy changes, and to a degree the, 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 the uh, international trade policies, Trump can and constantly does claim that the tax cuts, the deregulation, and even the trade policies are largely responsible for this continuing boom economy 
uh, continued declines in un- formal unemployment rates and continued relatively respectable economic growth rate. Investment rates are up. Big debate about you know what's what's caused this, but he certainly can plausibly claim that the tax cuts are uh, fueling the investment uptick, as well as the generally good economic performance. In fact, he's taking credit or trying to take credit for the last eight years, even though he's been in office a little less than two years. So in, in short term, these policies have been politically quite successful. Now, probably more importantly, what is the intermediate and long-term impact? Uh, particularly, I'm, I'm looking at 2020. The political success of Trump's policies are, I think, in the intermediate and long term, highly contingent. First, they're contingent upon the ability of Trump's critics, particularly Democratic partisans, to frame policies and their impacts in politically favorable ways. And, and of course, in turn, the ability of the Republicans, uh, Trump's spokes, uh, people and the Republican Party leadership to frame these policies in ways that are politically helpful to the Republican side. The Democrats have a reasonable case to make if they can come up with a strategy for essentially executing the case, uh, framing these issues in terms of, for instance, the negative side of the economy. We continue to see an increase in income and wealth inequality. In fact, uh, some studies uh, show that the big winners from the tax cuts are effectively the top 1% yet again. Despite the fact that wages uh, real wages seem to be growing. The the growth in in wages is very meager, and some argue, depending on what years you use or months you use, non-existent. For instance, going back to uh, uh, August, if you look at the change from August to August, August 17 to August 18, real wages were up in the in the ballpark of 2.7, 2.8 percent. But so is the inflation rate. But this is a this is a big deal. It's, you have huge gains that are indisputable going to the top one percent, with the broad middle and lower strata still uh, struggling. So if the Democrats can frame the stagnation of wages and the even accelerating in, uh, inequality, essentially an unfairness argument. If they can frame that right politically, then it, it certainly works against Trump and, and the Republicans. Probably even more important, but less well understood, I think, is the, is the second contingency. And that is, what is going to happen with the federal budget deficit? Uh, we just had a report out last week. We had a 17% increase in the budget deficit. It's up to nearly $800 billion a year. And by 2020, it will be a trillion. And the tax cuts, the revenue shortfalls under the new tax bill are largely responsible for this higher than anticipated. We had anticipated the deficit going up, but it's even going up. It's going up more than we'd anticipate. So you get a trillion dollar a year deficit. You're, you're, in terms of a percent of GDP, you're moving upwards of four to five percent of GDP. Um, <clears throat> And you're seeing signs right now of a Republican Party strategy that was used fairly effectively back in the Reagan-Bush years, the 80 to to 92 period, in which budget deficits were engineered and then in turn used to get significant entitlement cuts. There's been some hints of that. There's two things that could go terribly wrong for the Trump administration and the Republicans. One, if we did see any signs, any real... Um, a substantive downturn in the general economy. And many 
analysts are predicting a mild recession as soon as a year or two out. If that happens, the, bu- the budget deficit is going to mushroom and the economic consequences of that are going to be significant. And secondly, if you're talking about big budget deficits, which will get a lot of coverage, in the context of Republican efforts to reform entitlements, cut and roll back Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, politically it could be a very big factor in 2020. The final factor is the, this, the continued xenophobia, anti-immigrant, and even not-so-veiled racist sentiments that are coming out uh, in the Trump administration rhetoric. Uh, I see this, like the budget deficit, as, as a wild, wild card. This clearly hurts him and the benefit that he would get, the political gains he would get from a good economy with a broad swath of the middle class. It also fires up a core base that sees a lot of common sense in these appeals and who, if not voters that hold you know, sort of xenophobic atti- and racist attitudes themselves, tend to lean in the direction of sort of seeing a lot of our troubles really in the lap of foreign countries and foreign immigrants and so on. So you've got this combination of contingencies. I think that uh, we'll get a first inkling, perhaps, in the midterms, how these factors are playing out and whether the economic forces will offset potential budget problems and, and some of the more negative aspects of Trump rhetoric and so on. So we could get a clouded picture of how all this is playing out. We certainly, by 2020, we'll see whether or not the sale has been made. Trump's economic policies are responsible for our great economy. We'll see have much clearer emphasis about the magnitude of the deficit and what the Republicans have attempted to do uh, with entitlement reform and uh, how the rhetoric of xenophobia and related is, is playing out. Angry rhetoric. We'll see. As you all know, the discussion around the ACA, pre-existing conditions, and healthcare in general has become an extremely hot topic in American politics. We see it at play in these midterm elections, but also in conversations around the country. Questions like, what is the ACA? What might be the future of healthcare in the United States? And what are the plans each party has for healthcare are being asked. We talked to Dr. Susan Jaimo, who is an expert on healthcare policy, to find out the answers to these questions and more. So I'm Dr. Susan Jaimo. I'm adjunct associate professor in the Department of Political Science and the Department of Biomedical Sciences. I'm going to talk today about uh, health care policy and the continuing wrangle over health care reform that we're seeing between the two parties. Uh, a lot of it is about what is the future of the Affordable Care Act, and the parties are really divided on it. Most Republicans want to get rid of it, repeal it, replace it. Most Democrats want to defend it and maybe fix it, tweak its its problems. And then there are some people on the progressive Democratic side who would like to replace the Affordable Care Act too and replace it with a single-payer system along the lines of Canada's. So let's try to sort this out. Uh, first, I think we need to talk about what the Affordable Care Act is, what its main provisions are, and what it achieved or did not achieve. There were really three basic aims in this law. The first was to um, curb 
the rising number of uninsured in the United States. The second was to slow the growth in healthcare spending. And then the third was to improve quality of care and health outcomes. So why was this action needed? Well, there have been lots of things wrong with the United States healthcare system over the decades. And they really kind of came to a head at, in 2008 in that election and in the depths of the Great Recession. So there were growing numbers of uninsured really since the early 1980s. And at the depths of the Great Recession, nearly 20% of the population was uninsured. That was over 50 million people. The second problem was the U.S. spends an awful lot on health care, uh, more than double the average of other industrialized countries in the OECD. And finally, our quality indicators are really all over the place. We have very, very good quality in terms of smoking cessation. We've brought uh, the smoking rates down. We do well on preventive screenings and immunizations, and we do great on high-tech specialty care. I mean, we're known for that. But we're not so good on preventive care or primary care. We have too many specialists and not enough primary care providers, and we do a poor job managing or treating those with chronic diseases, particularly multiple chronic diseases like asthma or obesity-related diseases like diabetes, kidney failure, and things like that. And the Affordable Care Act basically set out to address all three of these goals and how did they do how did the law do it? Well the first was to make health insurance more affordable and accessible. And one of the ways was to expand Medicaid, which is the health insurance program for poor families and the disabled. Uh, what the government did, what the the law did was increase access to this insurance for individuals all individuals up to 138% of the poverty line. The second thing the law did was a lot of changes to private insurance, particularly for those sold to individuals and small businesses. And one was to set up an online website called healthcare.gov, where plans would compete and offer uh, consumers different choices, mainly based on their cost and the whether which hospitals and doctors you could see. But the other thing that the law did was it banned all sorts of practices of insurers that discriminated against the older, sicker, and poorer. Insurers could no longer charge higher premiums to people based on their health status that would hurt older and sicker people. They could no longer deny people coverage with pre-existing conditions or any other kind of health conditions. They had to accept everybody and charge everyone pretty much the same in, in a region with some details at the margin. They also had to offer an essential health benefits package that included all medically necessary care. And the, the other thing that the law required was everyone was supposed to have insurance. And the idea was to get everybody contributing into the insurance pool and having healthier people alongside sicker people to make sure that health insurance was affordable for everyone. But policymakers knew that health insurance is still very expensive, so they introduced a lot of subsidies on healthcare.gov. Most of what you're hearing about in the in the debate over health care is all about the financing and the insurance. But the Affordable Care Act did a lot of important things under the radar that are supposed to improve care and slow health care spending on the actual delivery side, how you actually get treatment. The law has financed a lot more training of primary care providers, nurse practitioners, PAs, as well as doctors, financed uh, pilot projects on better coordination of care between hospitals and doctors and other health professions, and then paying doctors and hospitals for achieving good health outcomes rather than just doing more tests. And so what were the results? Well, 
there were some real gains in terms of huge decline in the number of uninsured. Before the law took effect, as I said, there were uh, about 20% of the population was uninsured at the depths of the Great Recession. And in just before the law actually started in effect, which was in 2010, it was about 17%, 16 or 17% of the population uninsured. Today, it's under 9%. That's a historic low. And most of the people who got the coverage were people who were sicker and poorer and minorities. 31 states plus the District of Columbia have expanded Medicaid, and in those states, we have seen lower rates of uninsured than the 19 states that have not. Health care costs are rising more slowly since the passage of this law, since the um, implementation, but there are problems. It's, insurance is still really expensive here, and particularly people who don't qualify for the subsidies, whose incomes are too high but are in the middle class, are finding a hard time affording insurance. More and more people are paying uh, higher deductibles and other out-of-pocket costs, even if their premiums are not rising so much. It's kind of a uh, you know, mixed picture, and the big issue dividing the parties is whether uh, the, the law can be tweaked and fixed or whether it should be repealed and replaced altogether. So I want to talk a little bit about what the uh, Republicans have done and where they've gotten so far and what they want. I mean, I think the Republican view is that there should be a smaller government role, particularly at the federal level, giving more regulatory authority to states and giving more choices over coverage and how much you're going to pay for it to individuals and protecting at the same time protecting the vulnerable. And it's really a market model with far less regulation and some people would say less consumer protections. So I'm not going to go into the details, but basically for all of 2017, the Republicans controlled both houses of Congress and the presidency and tried to repeal and replace the law. They failed spectacularly in 2017 because of the defection of three key uh, Republican senators. It would have repealed the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act repealed all the subsidies for insurance, repealed the individual and employer mandate to provide insurance, and repealed a lot of the insurance protections. And the effects, according to the Congressional Budget Office, would have found that there would have been real deficit reduction of the federal budget deficit by $120 billion over 10 years, But the downside was that more than 20 million people would have lost their health insurance coverage. Um, And so the people who were going to get hit the hardest were older people, sicker people, disabled people, exactly the vulnerable people that the Republicans said they would take care of. And interestingly enough, most healthcare stakeholders were against these reforms, not only uh, patient advocacy groups, but even doctors, hospitals. Uh, even insurers were leery of some of these changes. And opinion polls showed that the public did not like these changes at all. And they started actually appreciating the Affordable Care Act more <laughs> as time went on. So, uh, but just because they couldn't repeal the law through Congress doesn't mean they couldn't make any changes at all. And the Republican Uh, administration under President Trump has done things like executive orders, which don't need to be passed through Congress, to allow for less comprehensive benefits packages off healthcare.gov in certain circumstances. But the problem is that it could lead people to be underinsured because these plans might not come with prescription drug coverage, mental health coverage, uh, substance abuse treatment, and so on. By offering these really 
limited coverage benefits, you attract essentially healthier people to buy those plans, and they leave healthcare.gov, and then the people who stay on the exchange, healthcare.gov exchange, are sicker, and the premiums for them keep going up and up and up, and then you get what the insurance industry calls a death spiral, where the insurers have to leave or else go bankrupt, and then the market collapses. Uh, another thing the administration did through an executive order was basically the federal government wasn't going to pay reimburse insurers for all the subsidies they provide to lower income people for deductibles and cost sharing. The insurers have to basically absorb that cost themselves and that led to some of the really, really high premium increases in the last couple of years. And now we have a current legal challenge to the Affordable Care Act. Fourteen states have joined a lawsuit uh, that's in the lower federal courts trying to get the law declared unconstitutional. And then the question is, if it is thrown out, well, what do you have left? Where do you, where do you go from there? And then there's the third approach of progressive left-wing Democrats, which is Bernie Sanders and others' Medicare for All proposals, which would basically have one government in health insurance, which is modeled on Medicare, which is the health insurance for senior citizens, and it would apply to everybody. But let's talk a little bit about health care in the midterms right now. There's the ongoing question of Medicaid expansion. There are 19 states that have not taken federal dollars to help expand Medicaid to more people on lower incomes. Uh, three states in the U.S. have ballot initiatives on this right now. Wisconsin has not taken the federal money and partially expanded Medicaid, but it's cost state taxpayers a lot. And Wisconsin has foregone over a billion dollars in federal money that it could have taken had it expanded Medicaid fully. Healthcare providers are for it. Hospitals and doctors associations say we should have this Medicaid expansion. More people will be covered. You'll get better health outcomes. There's also the question of if the affordable character is declared unconstitutional, what happens to people who are vulnerable, who depend on the subsidies and these insurance regulations? What about people with pre-existing conditions? The candidates in Wisconsin, Governor Walker, uh, Leah Vukmir, who's running for Senate, have basi basically support repealing the ACA, but they also say that they will offer protections with pre -existing, for people with pre-existing conditions, and they have not said how. So it's kind of unclear how they will square that circle. If the elections go, the midterms go, and the Republicans retain control of Congress or the State House here, I think you could get Republican health care reforms to work. But it would take a lot more money than they're willing to put forward thus far. And they would probably have to address, uh, keep the provision of the pre-existing conditions protections for people, you know, protecting those people and making sure they can still get affordable insurance. Um, if you get divided government where uh, you get a Democratic uh, governor or the House goes for the Democrats, I think you'll just get repeal and replace will be at a, at a standstill. That's not going to happen. Maybe you'll get some bipartisan reform to fix the defects of the Affordable Care Act. And that really is what opinion polls show that the majority of the public wants. We've got a lot on our plates for health care, a lot at stake. And not only in this midterm, but the current open enrollment period on healthcare.gov for individuals and small businesses started yesterday, uh, November 1st, and only runs till December 15th. So if you need insurance, get it now. So we're going to shift a bit away from domestic politics in this next phase and hear from Dr. Richard Fryman. Often you heard Trump promote a foreign policy with the motto of America first. 
Well, Dr. Farman gives us a brief and concise synopsis of IR theory and then explains how Trump's America First policies leave both realists and liberal theorists in international relations unsatisfied. My name is Richard Freiman. Um, I am professor of political science at Marquette. I teach courses in international relations and international political economy. Um, and I am also the director of the Marquette University Center for Transnational Justice. So, sort of dealing with the topic at hand here, what we're looking at is uh, sort of a take of the, the Trump administration in its first two years of office. And the lens that I'm going to use here is as a scholar of international relations. And the, the question then becomes, uh, sort of, what's the IR take on the Trump administration? And to give a little bit of a background, uh, given that the audience may not have a sense of what um, sort of IR scholarship is looking at, uh, we're going to look at some of the different sort of main theoretical schools and how those schools might be interpreting things. So uh, since the 1990s, um, international relations scholars have been broadly split between two different theoretical visions of the world. And the two visions, sort of one would be a vision held by liberal scholars, and the other would be a vision held by what are often referred to as realist scholars. And so liberal scholars, and these are scholars that are informed by liberal theories of international relations, um, when they look out at the world, they see a couple of things. Um, they see a U.S.-led order, but one that is eroding on a global scale. And the characteristics of this order are traditionally that it is rule-based, it is emphasizing the role of multilateral institutions. It relies on democracies and market economies that are integrated together. And it also has an element of a security component that's often referred to as extended deterrence, that the U.S. is playing a role in assuring the security of, of allied nations. For realist scholars, so the other camp, um, when they look out at the world, they see something different. And they see what is often referred to as a unipolar moment. In other words, the U.S. as the one dominant country on an international scale. But they see this unipolar moment as fleeting. And therefore, there's a need for the United States to live up to its potential as a great power. But the problem is that the U.S. has been distracted. Um, it's distracted by the war on terrorism, and it is failing to pay attention to more important things. And these more important things would include sort of regional balances of power that are essential to preventing the rise of rival countries on a regional scale, and also preventing their rise to a global scale. All right, so for with that as background, the question then becomes, how would people looking through these lenses then view the past two years of, of the Trump administration. So the short answer as to how both liberal and realist scholars would sort of view what's happened in the past, in the first year of the Trump administration, and sort of um, what has been happening, neither camp is going to be happy uh, with what has taken place. If you look at the world through a liberal lens, what they will see is that the erosion of the global order that has been so important to them um, has accelerated. And this plays out in a couple of ways. We've got the rhetoric of the administration and often practice have emphasized a couple of things, that international rules and international institutions are biased, that bilateral is much better than multilateral, and the multilateral that suspect is NAFTA, is the United Nations, is the World Trade Organization. Markets are suspect, and this is due to 
sort of state manipulation of markets and sort of the traitorous actions of U.S. corporations. Democracies are suspect and ironically sort of themes that come out of the administration that often authoritarians are more admired than democracies. Allies are suspect. Um, there's a sense that allies are free riding and perhaps more broadly not even necessarily worth defending. And if they are valued, it's only going to be on an occasional basis. From the realist lens, a view here would be that the administration has actually increased the risks to U.S. security and has also undermined systemic stability. And here, scholars would look at the fact that the administration, again, remains blinded by the war on terror. It is overcommitted to legacies in Afghanistan and Syria and to the Middle East more broadly. The administration has opened up the playing field to China and Asia. And this has happened in several ways. Uh, the U.S. withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, paralysis in the face of the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, a lot of confusion in U.S. military deployments around the world, a lot of confusion in alliance politics with South Korea and Japan. Through the realist lens, you would also see that the U.S. is not doing well in Europe. Uh, this is the whole debacle over NATO and even challenging a lot of the core of, of NATO principles, such as Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all. The U.S. approach to Russian power politics, the U.S. approach to the U situation in Ukraine, all of this sort of leads to a view that the U.S. is not doing well as in Europe. Realist scholars would also argue that the, US, the risks to U.S. security have also been affected by President Trump's almost personalization of great power politics. In many instances uh, where the president sort of meets with foreign leaders, such as the leader of, of China, the leader of Russia, and is almost um, sort of fawning over the leadership of, of those uh, two challenging countries. And realists would also be concerned with what at times seems to be sort of a moral foreign policy tinge when the administration starts talking about the righteous mission of the United States. So those are the views from sort of the two camps of the first year. And now cutting across both of these approaches, where you would probably get a sense of agreement is that there are some real problems in the administration at a basic level and that the administration has failed to grasp basic concepts of how does power work and how does influence work on an international scale. And here there are sort of two points that I'd like to make. Uh, the first point is a failure to realize that power is not just a function of capability, but power is a function of credibility as well. And let me expand on that one. Um, the United States clearly has capability, um, but the capability is unmatched um, or basically uneven. So on the one hand, when it comes to military, the U.S. has the strongest military in the world. It's an unmatched military force in terms of size, in terms of budget, in terms of planned increases. The U.S. has a strong economy. Um, it's been strengthening since 2008 and the financial crisis. Um, there's a growth trend in gross national product, but at the same time, uh, you have to look at what's happening within the Chinese economy. And even though Chinese economic growth has slowed, it's still on an accelerated path. And depending on sort of which analyst you look at, by the time we hit the 2020s, China will surpass the United States in terms of economic. Uh, another component of, of power's capability is population. And here the United States faces some serious challenges. The U.S. is facing what analysts might refer to as a population pyramid, but one that's inverted. In other words, we have an aging population 
and where a source of growth that often takes place in advanced industrialized countries is often through immigration. But we have extensive anti-immigrant policies in the United States, and so we have a population that's getting older and older being supported by a declining younger population. So the U.S. has capability, but the capability is uneven. The bigger problem here is that U.S. credibility has suffered in the first year of the administration. And it's suffered in a number of different ways. So first, if you'd sort of look at the United States from outside and how the rest of the world might view the Trump administration and the president in particular, is oftentimes there's a lot of bark, but oftentimes little bite. The president is very thin-skinned, and the president is also easily flattered, especially by pomp and circumstance. So if you give the president a good show, a good military parade, a good red carpet set up, he comes back thrilled, right? So in other words, the foreign read here is that you can sort of play around with this guy and sort of play to his weaknesses. Scholars will often talk about something referred to as credible commitments. In other words, the sense that when the U.S. makes a commitment, it will in fact follow up on the commitment. And here, there has been a lot of damage to U.S. credibility. A lot of the rhetoric about America first raises a lot of questions among allies as to how credible U.S. commitments are on their behalf. Second point here is how we understand influence. And by influence, what I'm referring to is, and what scholars would be looking at, is how you get others to follow rules, how you get others to abide by norms, how you get others to abide by commitments. And the key here is that influence in getting others to follow rules, norms, and commitments is not just a function of wielding capability. What you also need is the perception of others that the authority that you're trying to wield is legitimate. And here again, the administration's policies in the first year have hurt the United States. In seeking influence, uh, the administration has used threats of coercion, has used appeals to national self-interest or narrow self-interest, and has paid much less attention to whether the U.S. is perceived as legitimate or not. Instead, uh, what the administration has done has been to go, to go out of its way in essentially gutting the rule-based order of the international system that the U.S. in fact uh, created. Um, so this is not simply uh, the administration's approach to international institutions, right, which is certainly problematic here, right, because the institutions are being gutted. Um, perhaps more importantly is that a lot of the traditional sources of what scholars have referred to as soft power, um, and by soft power it's sort of the appeal of a country's institutions, values, and cultures to others. Um, what's happened here is that soft power has taken a hit, and ironically it's a self-imposed hit, and this plays out in a couple of ways. So if the administration argues that democracy in elections cannot be trusted, the U.S. stands for democracy in elections, and yet the U.S. is gutting the uh, importance and appearance of democracy in elections. If the U.S. is arguing that markets are inherently flawed, then sort of the, the, this U.S. soft power of representative of the appeal of markets is also undercut. Um, if the exercise of political and civil rights is portrayed as being treasonous, then the U.S. sort of soft power is standing as a beacon of political and civil rights is undercut as well. Um, if the argument is that the media is suspect and press freedoms should be cut back, then this again sort of undercuts this important component of U.S. soft power. If foreigners, if the foreign other is consistently portrayed as a threat, immigrants, refugees, foreigners more broadly 
are unwelcome and must be dealt with harshly. This again undermines U.S. soft power, which has played a critical role in U.S. policy um, since World War II. Sort of the U.S. is sort of shining beacon as the hill on the hill, uh, the epitome of democracy uh, that other countries should aspire to. And so now we're sort of moving into year two, and the question is, well, have things gotten better? Have things gotten worse? Sort of how do we use these lenses here? And so again, sort of going back to the initial approach I was using, from the standpoint of scholars using the lens of liberal theories of IR, sort of what would they think? And the argument I would make here is that it's pretty much more of the same and probably a little bit worse than it was in sort of year one. Are the realists sort of more assured now that we're sort of well into the second year of, of the administration? And the general sense here is that it's probably mixed, right? So the U.S., is reverting more and more to what scholars would refer to as sort of very, very blunt power politics, sort of wielding power. And for some realists, that makes a lot of sense, right? Um, the world works on power. The U.S. is powerful. The U.S. should exert its power. In the area of um, international economic relations and political economy, the U.S. under the administration, under the Trump administration, has been wielding what analysts would refer to as monopsony power. In other words, sort of the power to buy the size of the U.S. market, essentially threatening access to the U.S. market as a way to get trading partners to sort of alter their relationships. And thus NAFTA becomes the U.S. MCA um, sort of dynamic here. The sort of potential big picture that some realists have started to talk about is that perhaps um, there is a logic to what the administration is doing, that what the logic of the administration might be is that the administration is actually interested in isolating China, and therefore it is using all of these sort of bilateral renegotiations of treaties to put pressure on other countries, on particularly allies, to um, sort of further isolate um, China here. All of this is sort of based on forced compliance, however, using threat to get other countries to sort of join a particular agenda rather than any sort of buy-in. The problem here again, though, that realists would note is there are limitations to blunt power politics. And we're back to this idea of credible commitments, sort of how credible is the United States. And here there would be a sense on, on sort of the bluntness of power politics is that the power politics sort of lacks what classical realist scholars would call prudence. Um, in other words, sort of the rhetoric is sort of run amok. On the question of credible commitments, sort of here, realist scholars would say issues remain. Within the Trump administration, sometimes it's hard to figure out what's going on within the administration. And part of this is due to turnover. But also part of it seems to be changing on the whim of the president uh, himself. So the sense across many scholars in both of these camps, sort of a realist camp and a liberal camp, going on two years in to the Trump administration is that the administration is on a path that is not enhancing U.S. security, that is not enhancing U.S. influence, that is not enhancing U.S. standing in the world. We at Bridge the City wanted to conclude this episode by hearing from Dr. Philip Rocco, who specializes in the economy of expertise. And we found this topic to be extremely interesting. Uh, Dr. Rocco examines how even numbers themselves have become politicized, from the death tolls in Puerto Rico to presidential inauguration attendance. He examines manipulation and irresponsible use of data and how the terms of political debates affect democratic rights. 
So I'm Dr. Philip Rocco. I'm an assistant professor of political science at Marquette, and I'm the author of a book called Obamacare Wars, Federalism, State Politics, and the Affordable Care Act. And my research is really interested in the political economy of expertise and knowledge in American politics. And if that sounds a bit uh, meta, consider the following. In a 2017 expert survey, survey of political scientists, only 13% of political scientists surveyed believe that political leaders in the United States shared a common base of facts. This is a problem, right? Not just because we love facts, but our intuitive models of how democracy works kind of rely on the idea that voters and politicians share some common basis for deliberation. Partisanship and group identity seem to color so much about how voters think, right? Your perception of how the economy is doing depends heavily in part on if your party is in office and your attitudes apparently even towards the president affect how many people you think attended his inauguration. We're also treated to a seemingly endless string of debates about facts and numbers. Donald Trump falsely claims that 3,000 Puerto Ricans did not die as a result of Hurricane Maria, or that the U.S. balance of trade improved by a tremendous $52 billion in the second quarter of 2018. This is also sort of a pattern for Trump. During the 2016 presidential campaign 19 times, he said that unemployment figures released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics were, quote, totally fiction, unquote. As he put it during one of his New Hampshire rallies, quote, don't believe those phony numbers when you hear 4.9 or 5% unemployment. The number's probably 28, 29, as high as 35%, unquote. Even so, after the release of a positive February jobs report in 2017, his press secretary at the time suggested that while the jobs numbers were fake before, they were real now. Now, of course, these debates are complex. Uh, the average voter is not going to be able to verify this kind of thing in time. And in the last 20 years, we've also seen the rise of any number of fact-checking websites that tell you how many Pinocchios someone gets, right? PolitiFact, FactCheck, Washington Post FactChecker. The media has gone away from a sort of stenographic approach, just sort of taking down what politicians say, to actually trying to debunk false statements. But fact-checkers themselves have been embroiled in controversies too. Last month, fact-checkers at PolitiFact criticized supporters of Medicare for All, who highlighted a statistic in a report by a libertarian think tank, uh, the Mercatus Center, which is no fan of Medicare for All, that the plan would save $2 trillion. Rather than denying that figure, the Mercatus Center suggested that it wasn't the, quote, real estimate, which was contained in an alternative plan they created that had nothing to do with the one that Bernie Sanders had proposed. PolitiFact rated the Medicare for All supporter statements that the plan would save $2 trillion as, quote, half true. But the evidence they cited was the alternative plan, which again was nothing like the original. So what do we make of this? My research is, is interested in how the politics of facts and numbers became so contentious. And to understand that, I argue that we need to understand the infrastructure that creates those facts and numbers in the first place. Infra means below, structures that are just out of sight. And the same things that's, that's true of roads uh, is also true of facts and numbers. We take for granted numbers like the gross domestic product, the trade deficit, the unemployment rate, the population, voter registration, but they have to get there somehow. And government plays an important role in how they get there. Think about those deaths in Puerto Rico. From the vantage point of the, the 19th century, amazing uh, that we can count uh, these people at all. There were really no integrated systems of vital statistics in the United States until the late 19th century, 
and even quantifying age took a while. So imagine trying to prove to someone that you're old enough to vote simply by how you looked. Many of the government institutions that produce the numbers we have today are the product of the progressive era, the early 20th century. And thinkers in the progressive era held to this idea that modern democracy required expertise and rationality. Quantification was a way of institutionalizing trust in a far-flung society. By the 1950s, we began to see a greater level of quantification in government, uh, including the rise of cost-benefit analysis to evaluate the effectiveness, say, of military spending during the Cold War. Quantifying things changes politics. So the book that I'm working on right now, which is called Madison's Engineers, uh, looks at how the rise of quantitative information changed the way that members of Congress thought about state and local governments. In the 1930s, there was this great worry about whether or not state and local governments would just become irrelevant as the federal government grew. State and local officials trying to press their common interests before Congress had a difficult time, in part because they had no common measures or accounting standards to define their needs, or to say definitively how their economies were affected by the federal government's growth, or cutthroat competition from other states. So even debates about how you define a county there was no common standard for how you define what a county is, right, or a unit of government. So political scientists, statisticians, and economists began to change this through developing procedures to harmonize and professionalize the collection of data in state and local governments. And by the 1960s, Congress had authorized the creation of an expert advisory commission that would monitor the effects of federal policy on state and local governments and produce model legislation to strengthen those governments. The result was that members of Congress began to see federalism in a new light, they began to see it as a federal system, something that they could manage through expert advice and consensus building among stakeholders. But before long, this dream of expert-driven government fell apart. By the 1980s, state and local officials had begun to build stronger lobbying organizations of their own. Conservatives had also built think tanks outside of government and were pushing for more radical changes. And government itself enacted a program of fiscal austerity that weakened the influence of government experts. The result was that congressional expertise on state and local government dried up. Rather than a problem-solving tool, policy knowledge became a weapon in political battles. Interested parties put their preferred experts, studies, models, and assumptions against one another, raising the cost of comprehensive action. The chief good produced by this marketplace of ideas was doubt. And pulling back, this is very much the world that we live in today. Compared to democracies like Germany or Denmark, where state institutions either mediate or coordinate the production of policy knowledge, public-private research institutions in the United States compete with one another. As a result, no single set of organizations plays a dominant role in the formulation of presidential policy ideas. There's often conflict between them. The president issues his forecast for economic growth. Congress then issues theirs. So let me take you back to the case of Hurricane Maria. Trump's false claim that 3,000 people didn't die. Now, he was wrong about that, but the story here is a bit more complicated. The government of Puerto Rico's initial death toll reported only 64 deaths. Media outlets then criticized the government for suppressing the death toll. New York Times reporters then found upwards of 1,000 potentially hurricane-related fatalities. Puerto Rico was then under pressure and faced accusations of a cover-up. So it contracted with researchers at George Washington University to do a more robust study. All the while, Puerto Rico faced lawsuits from journalists. George Washington then produced a revised estimate of 2,975 deaths. At the same time, two scientists from Penn State estimated the death toll in Puerto Rico would be 1,085. Results from a Harvard study showed that 4,645 excess deaths during this period. 
Now, differences in attribution methodology here resulted not from researchers trying to tweak the numbers for political purposes, but from trying to be precise in a world where precision is just hard to accomplish. So it's not politics. But for strategic politicians in our polarized era, but for strategic politicians in our polarized era, ambiguities in data and nuances in method can be transformed into the stuff of controversy and conspiracy. In fact, sometimes the more precise, the more careful the study, in fact, the more honest it is about its uncertainties, the less capable it will be of helping us solve problems. You see this particularly with attempts to do randomized controlled trials or quasi-experiments in public policy. So what's the effect of giving people Medicaid in Oregon? What's the effect of raising the minimum wage in Seattle? The more careful studies, and these two are very careful, the ones that come up with a great number of qualifications and caveats are the ones that provoke the most disagreement. Why? For one, being careful means that you are unintentionally planting the seeds of doubt. Second, being careful and doing highly rigorous research raises the stakes. If it seems like the evidence could help one side of a political debate or another clinch the argument, that debate will transform from a small methodological issue into a full-blown controversy. Now, there's no easy way out of this fight. In fact, things might get worse before they get better. In many ways, the politics of facts are consequential. We're about to see some significant debates play out about the Trump administration's plan to include immigration status on the 2020 census. And how that debate is solved is going to have huge consequences for how we allocate representation and resources in our democracy. What will matter is ultimately not who has the right numbers of the fanciest methods, but how the terms of the debate are set. One thing that worries me is how these debates affect basic democratic rights. During and after the 2016 election, President Trump made numerous unfounded claims about massive voter fraud, even suggesting that fraud itself was the reason that he lost the popular vote. Shortly after taking office, he created an institution to buttress the claims, the President's Advisory Commission on Electoral Integrity. As the commission's chair, Trump appointed Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, and like Trump, Kobach had long made claims about widespread illegal voting by non-citizens in the U.S., also without evidence. Now, the commission was short-lived, and during its brief lifespan, it took testimony from self-styled voter integrity experts. The commission and its witnesses legitimized restrictions on voting with a rhetoric of pseudo-empiricism. Now, by most metrics of policy, building consensus or advancing a policy agenda, Kobach and this commission failed. Yet judging the commission by the usual metrics of success misses the point. Its actions, like Trump's, don't merely affect policy, they socially construct the public sphere, expanding the range of acceptable arguments and ideas to include dangerous and divisive claims about public institutions. Even if such actions don't ultimately succeed in the short term, I worry that they will sow long-term dissonance, discord, and doubt. And there is no technical fix for that. There's only a political one, and it might take a generation to solve. Our hope for this episode is that you leave with a better understanding of how the Trump administration's policies and behavior have far-reaching consequences for our entire political system. Yeah, and Bridge the City, as you know, we often look locally to understand how everyday citizens can get involved. But this episode does really demonstrate how national government also influences the world around us. We hope that one of the topics covered today 
might lead you to discovering more information. Yeah, here in the pod, many of our past guests' action steps are about getting informed and learning more about our civic institutions. So with the election coming up and two years into Trump, we hope you were able and we were able to help you follow through on that action step today. But remember, sound bites are not solutions. So get out there and vote and continue to stay informed on the topics that we covered today. A big thank you to all the Marquette professors who agreed to be on the podcast for this episode. Yes, that's Dr. Julia Azari, Dr. Paul Nolet, Dr. Dwayne Swank, Dr. Susan Jimo, Dr. Richard Fryman, and Dr. Philip Rocco. That's a lot of doctors. We got a hospital up in here. <laughs> okay. Many of them are active on social media. I really encourage you to give them a follow. And obviously, they are uh, very active in both academic and popular literature. So if you were interested in one of the things uh, that a specific professor talked about, dig deeper, find uh, out more information, and get involved in that specific sector. Yeah, we had a ton more from our conversation with each of them that had fascinating content Mm -hmm. and insight uh, that we just weren't able to fit into this episode. But we are super grateful for their time and their insight Thank you to you, our listeners. Please follow up on social media and rate, subscribe, and comment on whatever app you listen to podcasts on because it will help more people connect with Bridge the City. Yeah, so actually like leave a comment. So I know a lot of my friends listen. Mm-hmm. A lot of our friends listen. Yeah. Uh, Barack, Barack Obama listens. Nate Silver doesn't listen anymore. <laughs> but you got to comment too because that, that bumps us up a little bit. Yes. Uh, but most importantly, and as always, let us know are you are helping... Bridge the city.